What was the biggest education story of 2020? Uh, don't worry, it's the old rhetorical question. If you stay tuned to this episode, we will supply the answer as well as address two other questions you may or may not have been wondering. Who's Miguel Cardona and why should you care? That and more coming up on this end of year wrap-up edition of your favorite live stream and podcast, Random Assignment. Assignment, everybody. I am Bob Bowden. The other man is Corey D'Angelis. This, I think, would be the final installment of Random Assignment 2020 version. So thank you for joining us. Please like, share, and subscribe. This, uh, you know, we provide this free of charge for you, the viewing and listening public, hungry for information about your public and other, other schools. So uh, thank you very much. You know, kind of the least you could do is really show us a little social media love. So we appreciate that uh, when you could do that. Thank you so much. Um, and so, yes, to kind of do we're, well, the, the structure we thought we'd do is just a, uh, do a quick year in review wrap up, followed then by some of the big stories of the week. And although it's a holiday week, there have been a lot of big stories this week. So um, isn't there a new education secretary or something that was, you know, uh, gee, uh, there's rumor. Uh, I mean, you know, not one that's confirmed yet anyway. Yeah. But we'll see. We're not even sure who controls the Senate right now. But uh, so if we go to the main choice media homepage, though, we have our big story. We do this every year at the end of the year and spend a lot of time thinking about what the biggest stories of the year were. And this is the result. Our 10 biggest stories, which you can find on the Web and also on Twitter and also on Facebook, et cetera, for choice media. So. Corey, we'll just do a little countdown, and you tell me if what you think, if you have any reaction to each of these headlines right. on our top 10 countdown here. And so we go first. Uh, story number 10 is we do the, an attack on homeschooling. This was the backlash. Now, you were deeper into this Elizabeth Bartlett of Harvard attacks homeschooling story than probably anyone in America. <laughs> what are your reflections now that it's the end of the year on Man, this that story? This was like back in April, right? I think once the pandemic started, all of this uh, information started coming out where um, Harvard Magazine launched this article called The Risks of Homeschooling. And Barthel, it was based on Barthel's 80-page uh, article essentially calling for a quote-unquote presumptive ban on the practice of homeschooling, which turned out to be a lot worse than, than what it sounds. It actually turned out by... Uh, just based on what she was arguing for, it looked to be more like an all-out ban on homeschooling, just as everyone started doing it in April. So, I mean, this was this was just the worst timing possible uh, on the part of Harvard and this Harvard law professor. And they also wanted to start a conference. They wanted to do a conference this summer um, focusing on the uh, the negatives of homeschooling and 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 their policy proposals to regulate the crap out of it and then to ban it as well. Uh, Bartlett was supposed to speak at the conference. It ended up getting canceled because of COVID and other, and other issues. But uh, yeah, and that and was the a point lot of the fun. presumptive ban line, I think, is they were saying, oh, well, no, we're just worried about, you know, horrible parents who are abusive having this right to sort of continue to abuse their. You know, but, but we're not against homeschooling as long as a parent files all kinds of forms for approval and permission. And as long as there are bureaucrats that evaluate whether they're worthy, and as long as they, by the way, also show up for some 
classes at the government school and a bunch of other provisions like that. Oh, well, then it would be okay if, if as long as, you know, we get to decide if you're worthy. Yeah, that was there. That was her position. It was essentially uh, being guilty until proven innocent. Um, yes. It's it's the logic behind stop stop and frisk policies, and it's the logic behind you know when people say, oh well, if you have nothing to worry about, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to worry about. But uh, that that's uh, that's not how our legal system works. It's not how uh, homeschooling should work and education should work. So yeah, I think huge this is this is an example on I'm sorry to interrupt, but in this, in this, in my opinion, this is one of those examples where the backlash proved much larger than the initial lash, if you will, <laughs> and therefore I think we won. Going to story number nine: end of police and schools. Now, those who remember, you know, low ten, two and three years ago when there were school shootings, people were saying, "No, we can't arm teachers. No, we can't arm these school security officers. That would be horrible. We need actual policemen." But then you have the Black Lives Matter protests and you have the defund the police movement. And now it what we saw in it by now, I mean, in 2020, what we saw was a reversal of those will use the police as the security force in the past. In the case of a school shooting or some other terrible incident, we, we should have only the, the police should be armed and that should be the way that we deal with these problems. And Corey's taking a little uh, Oh, there he is. There he's back. I was going to say you're taking a little uh, vacation, uh, but uh, so, but now, so then, of course, with the with the defund the police movement, we saw this in the police and schools. What did you think, Corey? Yeah, I mean, this this started coming out around the summer when the George Floyd uh, protests were going on and the injustice that happened in Minneapolis. And I think uh, Minneapolis uh, public schools were one of the first to react by saying, oh, well, we're, we're not going to have any more police in our schools. And I think they ended a decades long contract uh, with the police department. And that kind of started a lot of this happening across the country. Um, and it's, you know, um, I mean, we also saw stuff with the, the reopening debate of schools where you had like the Los Angeles teachers unions putting things into their uh, uh, into their demands for safely reopening schools and the reports on safely reopening schools as they wanted to get the police out of schools as well. So they started to include these political demands into their reopening demands as well. And more recently, we've seen the same thing out of the Chicago Teachers Union where they're calling to, uh, they're calling for things like canceling rent and canceling um, uh, cops in schools. They call it counselors, not cops. They want to spend more money on support staff but not school resource officers and you yeah. know my take is i don't know there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution to this uh, maybe more security is better in a particular place unless other uh, i think uh, these are really uh, complicated issues that need to be solved from the bottom up and allowing people to make these decisions uh, on the ground Story number eight in our countdown is sexual assault claims mishandled. There's federal data that this NBC News story reported of 9,700 incidents of sexual assault, rape, or attempted rape at elementary and secondary schools in the 2015 to 16 academic year. And of course, we at Choice Media have been chronicling something we call uh, sexual assault, sexualabuseinschools.org, uh, which is a uh, uh, a su uh, surprising is the wrong word, a tragically shocking list of the volume of number of sex crimes that happen in K-12 schools. But anyway, this uh, so this has not I mean, it's been equated to the midst 
of the worst of the Catholic Church sex scandals that were happening 10 and 20 years ago. Um, and so I guess there's been nothing really resolved about this yet, but it's... I mean, uh, and, and, and this kind of reminds me to back to story number 10 with the homeschooling debacle. This, this kind of stuff came up too, because the logic behind Bartholet's call for presumptively banning um, home-based education is she said that there might be some abuse happening in the in the public in in, in the house and there might be some uh, educational malpractice going on in the house to which a lot of people uh, including myself and others on the side of the homeschoolers and educational freedom said well that kind of stuff happens in the schools too so if you if you ban homeschooling, it actually may lead to more abuse because people are more generally more likely to be abused uh, by by uh, non biological family members uh, in the schools. And th this reminds me of a Department of Education report that came out quite a while ago, but it's the latest one that we have in 2004, uh, estimating that that uh, somewhere around one in every ten students will experience uh, sexual misconduct by the educators themselves by the time they, they reach uh, high school or by the time they, they uh, finish high school. Yes. So uh, this is something that happens I love that you made lot. that point, by the way. That was, that's one of my, it's, it's another one of the great sort of choreisms of 2020 is when you made that comparison about tying together the Elizabeth Bartholet anti-homeschooling position, much of which was predicated on this idea of parents being sexual abusers to saying, well, where is your analysis of the, Sexual abuse in public schools. Good point. Uh, story number seven was 1619 infiltrates classrooms. Now, this was a something that was originally reported about the New York Times, the 1619 Project. It, it was built on the idea that America was designed on the basis of slavery, that that was the real, true, underlying reasons for starting something called the United States of America. Uh, it had it has been since largely debunked by a number of academics, and even the New York Times has quietly edited back some of the lines and statements that were the most strident in the original 1619 Project uh, uh, publication. And then you have the Trump administration later starting some something called the 1776 Project, which was an answer to that, saying that America, yes, has had uh, we had the original sin of slavery, and we and our country's not perfect, but it's generally a country that is moving in the direction toward more freedom uh, all the time, and and it is not a country that is whose basis is racism. So that, but that's big in that in that many public school classrooms began teaching the 1619 Project as part of the state curriculum. Yeah, I remember when I first saw this, I think it was, yeah, I can see it in the writing Buffalo, New York, but it was also in classrooms in, in Washington, D.C. And, and other big cities uh, across the nation. I think there were five on the 1619 Project website, but I recommend everybody go follow Phil Magnus. He's at American Institute for Economic Research, and he's done a book debunking the 1619 Project, which, which is, uh, I highly recommend anyone who wants to go check out uh, both sides of the issue. And this kind of reminds me of a Twitter spat that happened this week between the uh, one of the main people in the uh, 1619 Project, um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, where she got, in got into it with some school choice supporters on Twitter. Uh, she said school, so she, she went on this thread about um, 
uh, you know, integrating schools and someone, yeah, random account said, hey, school choice would, fi would help fix that about, you know, it would help integrate schools and lead to, to more equity. She responds, school choice literally came about to stimmy in integration, but nice try. Uh, as you can see, um, people corrected her 614 replies. Uh, that's a ratio of about six to one um, on this tweet because she gets the history completely wrong. I think uh, Inez Stepman at Independent Women's Forum, her I thought she had the best reply. She said something like, um, "This is about this is a, this is just as bad as the history of the 1619 project or something like that." Because um, there were there were segregationists who opposed private school choice in the 50s because they understood that, that expanding these opportunities would actually lead to more integration. And sure. uh, obviously school choice has been around since the 1800s in places like Maine, Vermont, and New Hampshire. They've all had private school voucher programs well before the 1950s, before Milton Friedman was even born. Milton Friedman argued that school choice would probably lead to integration. It could lead to either way, but he said he, he thinks it would lead to integration because the public schools are already so segregated. That's what the current day evidence suggests that Friedman was right. Milton Friedman was correct, that it tends to lead to racial integration. And um, Thomas Paine wrote about his private school vouchers in, uh, in The Rights of Man, and so did um, uh, John Stuart Mill in chapter three of On Liberty. So that well, was a fun voucher program uh, in America was in Milwaukee, uh, a, a largely African-American student population. And it was, believe me, that the vouchers in Milwaukee were started in 1990 or 91, not because there were whites trying to get away from minority schools. Believe me, this is a very large, uh, what would be called a minority majority school district in Milwaukee at the time. And in countless examples, as we see, you know, these examples are never brought up. I, yes, uh, I, I think she, I think she was beaten. Didn't she actually kind of? Uh, well, you tell me. What happened on Twitter after she got that ratio of six to one? Well, I mean, a, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, media outlets um, <laughs> uh, uh, pointed it out that she got the history wrong, and um, you know, uh, look, you have this uh, professor Chris Suprenit at the University of. New Orleans correcting her. Look, that you know this is the op. The opposite's actually true. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, people in our circles responding to her. It was just, I mean, I just go recommend. You know, Chris, Chris Stewart responded to. That's literally inaccurate. <laughs> I mean, just because she said school choice literally came out about to stimmy integration. I mean, it's just not true. Uh, if you look at the entire picture, and there's a lot. There's some people today that are known to be you know, like Richard Spencer has come out against private school choice um, because of probably because of the integrating effects. Um, so, I mean, this just leaves out that, in, that entire conversation on the other side. So I, 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 when I responded, I linked to Phil Magnus's work uh, uh, in my book, School Choice Miss, and then I also linked to Phil Magnus's work in uh, Journal School Choice, where they also point out that regardless of whatever the history is on this, uh, this is a genetic fallacy argument. Just because something could have been uh, argued a long time ago for one particular purpose doesn't mean that it's actually 
happening today and doesn't mean that people have the same intentions behind the policy today. That's a type of fallacy called the genetic fallacy. Um, so it's one, you know, it's a genetic, it's a, it's a fallacious argument to begin with, but then it's not even right on the history. And I think someone else pointed out, oh yeah, that was Chris Chaprenant who pointed out, well, I mean, what about minimum wage? Do you support minimum wage? And I think this is what I pointed out in my debate with uh, Professor John Hale, where I asked him, you know, I wonder if John Hale uh, supports the minimum wage despite its racist origins. He would not respond during that debate because one, I knew he supported the minimum wage. And then two, he wasn't going to respond to that because it would point out that his argument is fallacious. And the also, even if these people believed it to be true that if something originates a certain way, then it is always bad, as you describe. What about the racist origins of traditional public school, where before Brown v. Board, they were literally segregated public schools? You don't hear them making that argument about the racist origin of government public schools because there was actual segregation happening there. If, if the way something started is... <laughs> Can, should be used to judge it today. Why aren't they judging public schools by the way they started? You're right. They're only they're only using this history, which a lot of us pointed out is incorrect, as a weapon to defund private educational options. But not they're not bringing that same energy to the public school system, it's which selective. arguably has a worse history in many places. Because if they did, they'd, they'd be calling to defund the public schools. But no, instead, they're calling to throw more money at the public schools, despite their history. So it's a selective it's, use of logic. But moving on, story number six, public school enrollment plunges is not a surprise to anyone watching Random Assignment the past few weeks and months. Boy, that is, seems like that's all we ever talk about anymore is the plunging of public school enrollment. And gee, there's just uh, so many stories and uh, combined with stories of homeschooling going way up pods, education pods or pandemic pods going way up, online learning through online charters, et cetera, going up. So we, we're seeing all that as well as just private school enrollment going up. Um, and so, yeah, it's an every, it seems like every day, look at this, Los Angeles public school enrollment dropped by nearly 11,000 students. That's, that's in and one it, school district. It, it keeps happening everywhere. Yeah. All right, so let's move on. Uh, number five, students' mental health taking a hit. Now, this is the kind of thing that the uh, establishment doesn't like to talk about too much because they want to just message one thing, which is COVID risk, COVID risk, COVID risk. And therefore, we should just basically not have in-person education until some future time when there's zero risk of disease for everyone. Uh, this is the counterpoint to that. It is now, as we've talked about on our podcast, receiving finally some mainstream media attention from everyone from ABC News, uh, excuse me, uh, NBC News Today show did a piece on it and we've covered a few others, but it's a big story for a lot of parents. And this reminds me of the, uh, I mean, again, back to story number 10 with the, uh, the, the, uh, the attack on homeschooling. The error there was only attacking instances of negative events occurring in one sector, but not the other. With story number five, uh, you see a lot of people talking about the the negative risk that could occur from the virus, but not the negative risk that can uh, that can be associated with the government's response to the virus. And one of these things that people are are, are now more likely to uh, to talk about is the students' mental health 
could be taking a hit from being locked down so long and not having uh, educational options. And one other th thing is a study just came out uh, it, that I wrote with uh, Angela Dills at Western Carolina University, uh, finding that expanding school choice or states that have expanded school choice uh, have seen reductions in teen suicide rates and they've seen uh, improvements in long-term mental health as well. So that's a, a related story that was uh, covered in the Wall Street Journal just uh, this past week. Story number four, teachers unions resist. And this is not just only resisting in-person education, but also, as Corey mentioned a few moments ago, building in a bunch of other uh, grab bag of goodies. Oh, if we're going to go back and teach in person, we're going to need this many more teachers hired so that it'll reduce the class sizes. And we'll need uh, things like uh, police defunded, defund the police, or we need these kinds of new curriculum changes. And we need all of these other demands. It's almost a sense of like, oh, we can use coronavirus to ask for all kinds of stuff. This is fantastic. <laughs> So yeah, we've seen a lot of we've seen a lot of teachers unions becoming a lot more strident in this area where they yeah, we saw the lady in her car in Portland, Oregon screaming at the parents who were protesting, "Hey, let's reopen these schools at least for the students who really need it the most. Maybe not everyone is going to going to go in person right now." And a teacher just screaming at these parents as if they just didn't even deserve to be in the conversation. Well, and um a California teachers union in San Diego just filed an injunction, a request for an injunction from the courts to prevent a district from reopening some schools in uh, January 4th. So we keep seeing this happening. It just keeps happening and happening. Whereas with the private schools, they are f literally going to the Supreme Court in some cases to try to fight against governments from shutting them down. It's a completely different approach and I think it's because one of the sectors gets your money regardless of whether they open their doors. And so, and I also want to say on this, I think the teachers unions are actually overplaying their hands when you see things like the public school exodus. You have the, the teachers unions trying not to reopen the schools as much as possible in a lot of places. Then they're losing money attached to that enrollment after families are, are seeking, seeking alternatives. And then they're complaining that, they, that, that they're losing money. I mean, it's, it's, it's just beyond parity at this point. Story number three is from the SCOTUS, the U.S. Supreme Court Espinosa prevails. And for those who don't remember, this was a 5-4 ruling that said that states offering scholarships to students in private schools cannot exclude religious schools from those programs. It was written by John Roberts, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, who, um, who in sometimes uh, votes with the liberal wing of the court, but in this case did not. And this was said to be a case where something called Blaine Amendments went to die, which had been the state's, uh, the state supreme, the state constitutional amendments, not the U.S. constitutional amendments, but certain states with amendments to those state constitutions, which prevented uh, money from flowing to religious schools or sectarian schools. That was the language they gave back uh, around the time of the 1880s, 1890s, when the, these kind of anti-Catholic amendments were passed by states. At any rate, uh, all these years later, what it basically did was it served to discriminate against religious schools. And there were states that said, oh, yeah, sure, well, you, can have a, you can have a private school tax credit or a private school voucher, but as long as they don't mention God, the second they mention any kind of higher power, now we're going to declare that 
scholarship illegal? And the U.S. Supreme Court said, nope, that would be uh, a form of discriminating against religion. Yep. And I think they also ruled it on based on the uh, free exercise clause of the First Amendment, which I think is a bigger win. And I think this sums it up very well. Uh, Robert, Chief Justice Roberts said, uh, quote, a state need not subsidize private education, but once a state decides to do it, it cannot disqualify some private schools solely because they are religious. Yes. So story number two, I'm hearing the drum roll starting for story number one, but right now we're at story number two, pandemic pods disrupt. And so we had Choice Media at the end of last year, I believe it was, we had, uh, we had uh, covered the Prinda school in Arizona, which were these little micro schools that started to form even before people had heard of COVID-19 as a thing. Uh, this was a movement that had already started. Hey, look, what if uh, you had these little groups of kids from the community, you have the advantage of small groups and parents being directly involved, uh, but you also have the advantage of social interaction because unlike homeschooling where maybe just an only child would be there with, there'd be no other kids, there would be a way to have more social interaction than might otherwise be the case. So pandemic pods, also known as micro schools, seem to be have been exploding in this COVID era and Boy, if there's one thing that I think may last the longest, Corey, after all of this is gone, after this disease is something only for the history books, maybe this particular item right here will be the thing that lasts the longest. Yeah, and what's interesting is you, you mentioned Prenda. Remember uh, the NEA, the, National, the largest teachers union, actually set up like a, a rap sheet on Kelly, uh, on Kelly Smith, the CEO of Prenda, and I think Wall Street Journal actually wrote about it saying like, this is the, this is the teachers union's tiny little enemy, I think was the name of the, uh, the, um, the, the article. And another thing that I remember about this whole conversation, right when it started, the, the initial gut rea uh, knee jerk reaction from the mainstream media was to say that this is a problem because this is leading to uh, segregation and inequality because more advantaged families are seeking out pandemic pods and less advantaged families don't have options when the schools are closing. And they're placing the blame on these families in so many places. But I, I think um, more people are now realizing that some of the blame might have to do with the teachers unions keeping the schools closed and, and, and leading to inequality that way. And another solution that most people were just not mentioning, especially at the start was, well, yeah, it's true that more advantaged families will be more likely to do this, one way to fix that inequity is to fund students directly so that more families have options um, as well. And this reminds me of a Bloomberg article that just came out yesterday. And they tweeted out, affluent families ditch public schools, widening U.S. inequality. I corrected the headline by saying teachers unions keep schools closed, widening U.S. inequality. <laughs> I mean, this whole article, they never mentioned the teachers unions uh, they never mentioned, uh, uh, you know, that that funding Same students with those mental health stories, Corey. This. Yeah, those mental health stories, uh, students who need in-person education, not getting it, suffering mental health problems. They'll have done the story the day before about how unions were fighting to keep the schools closed. And then they do the story the next day about mental health suffering when schools aren't open and they don't connect the dots saying it's the unions doing it. Yep. So I thought that was a fun story.
All right, so drum roll, please, everybody. I uh, yeah, your virtual drum rolls. I don't know. We have any guesses from the uh, audience? But no, I'm just kidding. Um, number one for 2020 is districts fail the online learning test, and this was the piano playing video that we did up with Choice Media, showing it wasn't just online learning. A lot of parents were. Uh, complaining over how my kid isn't doing this, this is not working, this online learning isn't, is a failure. And we kept trying to remind the mainstream media as much as we could, but also just our followers and readers that online learning is not one thing. If you have someone doing something for the first time, and by the way, told they won't be evaluated how well they do it, district teacher playing on Zoom, it's quite different from an organization that spent decades getting better and better in online learning and is evaluating teachers and uh, in terms of how well they do it. So, but when districts did the online learning test, boy, a lot of people just said, this is awful. We want uh, no part of this. Yeah, it's a good point that uh, online learning is not the same when, when it's disaster online learning as, as opposed to schools that have been doing it for a long time. And um, one thing I like to cite is the Education Next survey, nationally representative survey that came out uh, pretty recently, and they found that families with students in private and charter schools were much more satisfied, I think over 50% more satisfied with their school's response to the lockdown and, and how they did remote learning relative to uh, parents with students in the traditional public school system. So. That's just uh, one data point su suggesting that you can't, if you do it right, it, it can work. But then even then, if, if um, even if it's a, a, a great model of remote learning, one size still doesn't fit all, uh, families should still have a choice uh, to choose to, to, to pick one in person or virtual. All right, so that only gives us about a half an hour to cover all the other week's news. And so, uh, I don't know, there's a guy by the name of Miguel Cardona. Is that? Who, I guess he ran Connecticut schools. I really have to confess, I wasn't, uh, didn't really know too much about Mr. Cardona until this week. Same. And what do you make of all this, Corey? Yeah, I mean, when <laughs> someone uh, emailed me to interview about uh, the new um, – the, the, the pick for education secretary. And I'm like, ah, I gotta be honest, I don't know much about him. So I started look, looking into it and um, it looks like, uh, you know, as you can see from this Newsweek article, I think uh, the teachers unions might not be happy with the pick uh, because one, it's not the union boss or a f former union boss. Uh, but uh, he, it, from what I'm seeing is he's pretty friendly to reopening of schools. And so that some teachers don't like that he likes that he wants to reopen the schools. Um, then I've also seen that I haven't seen that he's come out hard one way or the, uh, the other with things like uh, school choice or, or public charter schools. There's not a lot on uh, Cardona. I think I, I, I think on his Twitter account, maybe I was looking at the wrong one, but he only had like yesterday, like three or four thousand followers, which which is a pretty good amount. But you're thinking, you know, education secretary. I was expecting to find an account with 100,000 followers. Well, for example, he had been encouraging schools. So he hadn't been Connecticut's head of education that long, uh, about a year or so, something like that. But he um, he had encouraged schools to open for in-person learning during this corona pandemic. He was not taking the union stance so much in Connecticut. There's that. 
there, there's also the fact that on charter school, he hasn't charter schools in Connecticut. Now it's a small footprint in Connecticut. It's uh, charter schools are, well, they're just a, uh, they're, they're a fraction of what they could be in terms of size, but nevertheless, he has not been anti-charter. He hasn't been particularly pro-charter either. He's been kind of quiet on that subject. Uh, but I guess one of the things that this Newsweek article points out you pulled up is about how they're, they're basically kind of pissed off that he didn't spend a long time as a teacher. I guess Mr. Cardona was a teacher for about five years before starting to move up in his career into administration. And, mm -hmm. and they thought, oh, where's this promise from the Biden administration that we will have a real you know, a real teacher or whatever their language was, they, you know, in their view, um, gee, this is uh, a dilettante, someone who just taught for a very short amount of time. And well, what that, about uh, Randy Weingarten? <laughs> well, didn't well, she teach like five, six years too? I don't know how long she That's taught. It does seem like she's been a union boss forever. So, <laughs> yeah, I heard uh, she didn't, hasn't taught that long. And, but I, I wonder if you'd have the same kind of uh, energy coming out against Randy Weingarten at the, on the same point in Newsweek. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I doubt it. But it's, um, I mean, uh, and this is also one of those things and where I, I may get a little speculative here, but I, when it was surging, this suggested that either Randy Weingarten from the American Federation of Teachers or Lilia Skelson Garcia, former NEA president, when those big union boss people were being promoted as Biden's education secretaries, I was kind of thinking, oh, that could be another one of these backlash moments. Not unlike what I was saying about Elizabeth Bartholet and homeschooling, where if if uh, one side goes so far in their direction, it actually produces a larger backlash. Mm -hmm. I kind of was expecting that. My, I was actually predicting that was going to happen. And then I'd be the one tweeting, actually, guys, this may not be so bad that than Weingarten or Skelson Garcia. You know, we <laughs> may actually get a lot more fuel because of this. Instead, it looks like Biden went with kind of a avoid the controversy style choice so we'll have to wait and see yeah i mean the uh the thing here is it seems like i mean if again speculation it seems like the biden administration pretty much figured oh well if we do an, an extreme person and then come with this one no one no one will have any any you know they'll be happy that it wasn't randy weingarten or lily they could have picked anyone besides them and then everybody would be like oh yeah not not a bad job i think a lot of reform groups actually came out and said positive things about biden's pick um yeah. even though there's not much to see about school choice and i'm kind of staying quiet about it now maybe he comes out in favor of school choice and maybe one other interesting tidbit before we move on cardona wrote his doctoral dissertation on clothing dissertation on closing the achievement gap between english language learner students and their peers so he's a latino american a former english language learner himself it says and so he relates to students of color it says and those who speak other languages at home so uh this is said to be a uh, uh you know maybe um uh triangulation somehow of this is a latino choice and we'll see we'll see what that plays out politically but i want to get your thoughts on this i was thinking you know whether it's lily randy or or the the actual Cardona. pick Cardona. Do you expect that the policies are going to be any different, or do you think it's just going to be whatever Biden's and you know Biden and Kamala want is what they'll pursue? <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it has been a source of great speculation. Uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll I might anger some people here, but I I, I can certainly say things I, I I disagreed with or 
problems I had with Donald Trump over the years. But one thing I, I believe about Biden is that he is not the man he used to be, that his mental faculties seem to be uh, at a lower level. And who really will own the teleprompter of hmm. President Biden? In other words, when it comes to policymaking, who's really going to be the person doing it if my theory is correct and 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 the president-elect is starting to lose his uh, faculties. Uh, will it be the vice president? I kind of doubt it. I think it's probably more likely to be, on this matter, it might be his wife, for example. It mm. might be Jill Biden it, in, on, on a matter like this. Or perhaps it will be the secretary of education. Or perhaps it will be some other kind of group from, you know, the U.S. Department of Education kind of deep staters who have the jobs no matter who's actually... Uh, winning the presidency. I don't know. It's hard to say. Yep. And I mean, the thing, the, the thing I was thinking is if they're going to do the same policies anyway, you know, he's going to get a lot less backlash with Cardona than if it was a, a union boss pushing the same policies. So it's kind of a smart move, I think, uh, politically and, and just, um, vision, you know, just uh, in the public eye, I think it'll be uh, better for Biden in the long run. But yeah, we have lots of lots of other st stories. Um, something I wanted to point out was there's this new website called whatarethelearning.com. Have you seen this one yet, Bob? Yes. Uh, they're tracking instances of political uh, politicized curriculum in the public schools. So they got a little map, which is interesting. Here's the website. You can submit your own examples of politicized curriculum in public schools here. They have a little form, the district, the state, um, a little bit of what the title is of your review and then what happened and you put your email and then it goes and puts it onto this uh, map. Um, and if you just wanna look and see what's going on, you can zoom into your state, uh, click on your state and um, It'll, it, it, you can drill down really deeply into this. But I thought that was a, a cool little tool um, that people should go check out, and uh, you can submit your own examples if you'd like. Okay. I wanted to talk about this uh, big federal spending bill that specifically, well, it shovels a lot of more money to schools, not unlike the CARES Act from earlier this year. But a big difference is this one prohibits money for school choice. Yeah, fifty-four billion dollars to the to, to, to the to the school system for K through twelve. About fifty, fifty-one billion is going to traditional public schools, and the other two or three billions going to non-public schools. But none of it can be used for education choice programs. Previously, during the CARES Act, you had states like Oklahoma, North Carolina. Uh, New Hampshire, their governors used that money to fund students with vouchers or education savings accounts. Now, the bill uh, specifically says you can't do that. Here it is. Yes, that's Restrictions. It. Funds provided under this section shall not be used to provide direct or indirect financial assistance to scholarship granting organizations or related entities for elementary or secondary education or to provide or support vouchers, tuition tax credit, programs, education savings accounts, scholarships, scholarship programs, or tuition assistance programs for elementary or secondary education. So they saw, they must have seen that, oh, well, the governors were giving money to students directly. We don't want them to do that anymore. And so they put a specific provision to prevent that from happening going forward. Yes. 
And uh, and just a shout out to Paul Guessing, uh, writing The Errors of Enchantment. It's a New Mexico <laughs> newsletter. Why is New Mexico not realizing its potential? And he calls this an ugly federal spending bill for specifically prohibiting dollars for school choice. Yep, and a AFC, American Federation for Children, had a good write-up on this, if anyone goes, wants to go check it out. Um, I think their current president, uh, oh, and they also pointed out that uh, you know, the $2.75 billion can go to private schools, but not through school choice programs. Uh, and it's only about 5% of what of the total, although about 10% of kids are in uh, public K-12 uh, private schools. So, so uh, I, I actually, I mean, so can you exp tell me what that means exactly? So there's money going to private schools, but not school choice yep. programs? In yep. other words... That means parents can't get anything directly, but if you give the money directly to a from a governor or a state to a private school, that's okay, as long as parents yeah. don't have any involvement in control. They wrote into the bill, essentially, that we got to fund institutions and not students. I mean, it's exactly what we don't want. I mean, I, I guess it's good that private schools are getting some of it too, and maybe they could use it in ways to reduce the cost of students but they can't use the money for a, a private school, school choice program by you know, through an education savings account or a voucher. You can't give the money to families to use for, for right. school choice to, 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 to attend a private school or to, so, I mean, it's, it's only allowed to be direct subsidies to, to buildings, which I think is the worst way to, <laughs> to structure it. Yeah, indeed. All right. What else you got? Uh, oh, uh, we talked last week about, uh, EdChoice had that new survey where they found that the support for school choice is just surging regardless of the type of choice you're looking at. But we didn't, uh, I didn't uh, see this last week was another one. They do this a lot, but this is the latest one where they say, look, this is the school that your child is in. Where would you like to send your child if, if money weren't an issue or if you had a education savings account, what would you pick? And so what this shows is 83% of kids are in government-run schools, which is aligned with the national databases, and 5% are in public charters. But what, when they ask public school pa or parents in, in the general public, only 33% would actually want to send their children to their residentially assigned public school. Um, so that's, all, that's, that's less than half than the amount that are currently in there, about two... Uh, two and a half times the amount of families which that are in uh, charter schools would want to be in charter schools. A lot more families would choose private. About 41% of parents say they would like private. 12% say homeschool, even though only about a quarter of that amount were homeschooling previous to prior to the pandemic, formerly homeschooling. You know, for decades, the cliche about parent preferences in this space is this. They say, Parents generally think public schools are failing in many places, but their own public school is good. This is the thing that had been repeated for mm -hmm. since the cows have gone out before the cows have come home. I don't know. This is thing repeated forever. I guess the point is that this pandemic has shifted that, that, that this, that's what's changed all this. It's the failure to reopen schools when the charter and private schools are opening. And I guess that's the theory, right? Yeah, I think families are waking up, right? Um, they're seeing that the public school system just isn't there for them this year. Whereas in previous years, maybe they didn't really know how well the school was doing, but they're really seeing this year that uh, 
the, the institutions getting to keep their children's education dollars, regardless of whether they even open their doors for business, families are scrambling and they're seeing this all across the country that they're getting the short end of the stick. And maybe that's one of the only silver linings of the pandemic that families are waking up to this power imbalance yeah. um, that, that the institutions just have this huge monopoly power, whereas families are essentially powerless when it comes to most K through 12 education systems. And before there was a certain, I guess, um, a certain degree where parents might be kind of lulled into a state of insouciance or not really, probably less awareness about, they would see a school in a suburb and well, they had a nice football team and they would have games and they had the cheerleaders had cheerleader costumes and the band had band instruments. And you'd, you'd look at the school, it would look like it was functional. The building looked nice enough and, you know, and they would think, oh, well, this school is good. They would just kind of, you know, have that surface level assessment, something like the pandemic stripes. And it almost like it's like the curtain being ripped away from the Wizard of Oz, where you suddenly see, oh, look, there's these levers and levers. The Wizard of Oz is it's not all this magical thing you once thought it was. And it's um, and so, yeah, wait, you're not opening. You're staying closed. But wait, you're keeping our money. Suddenly, this kind of surface level assessment stops being a surface level assessment. It's a you're not open assessment. And I think that maybe that's what you're talking about. It makes it more concrete, right? The main problems. And what I've said is that the coronavirus pandemic didn't break the public school system. It was already broken. It simply exposed the problems that had already existed for decades. Now, now I want to talk about a story that's probably the least important story we've talked about in this entire hour up to this point. But to me, it is the perfect little metaphor of what is broken and wrong with these top-down, rigid, bureaucratic systems that function like a they, – they have this forward movement and inertia of an aircraft carrier. They can't move. They're not nimble. They can't adjust. They just, ha they just walk in the same direction no matter what's happening in, in, in many ways. And this was the Slate story titled, School Shooting Drills Have Gone Virtual. Now, believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, there are these um, there are these school these states and these districts that have required school shooting drills. That's the rules. You've got to do this many school shooting drills. And if you don't do this many school shooting drills, you're in violation of such and such and you get such and such less funding. So what are they doing? They're now on Zoom calls and they're ha and they're having school shooting drills Oof. on Zoom calls where little kids, look at that photo, little kids have to pretend in their homes like there's a shooting happening. You think, it sounds crazy. And how's that going to help you if you're not in the school building? They are so inflexible. They have to proceed forward with this idiotic idea that since the curriculum, it forces us to do school shooting drills, well... To, we got to keep doing the school shooting drills, really, because all the kids are at home in their bedrooms and living rooms right now or their kitchen table. We have no, so too bad. We have to go forward with our school shooter drills, even though kids are logged in at home online. I mean, remember this happened in Indiana, too, where the kid uh, had that viral video because his parent was like, you got to be kidding me. They had a virtual fire drill. Same kind of thing. It's just, I mean, when even Slate says, you know, describes this as twisted, you know, you know, like I mean, they're generally in a, one of the one of the journals you'd expect to defend anything government schools do. But in this case, not so much. 
Yeah, and one other thing, um, I thought it was interesting that the New Hampshire governor, Sununu, is that how you say his last name? I think they're always called Sununu in New Hampshire. That's Sununu. Um, so the Free State Project in New Hampshire, which is a project trying to get more libertarians to go to New Hampshire to make New Hampshire a libertarian state, they pointed out that uh, the governor is adopting the language of uh, yours truly. Oh, good. Uh, Sununu. Um, focus education funding on kids, not systems. And I went and I, I saw this tweet, so I'm like, oh, I'm going to look for what the actual uh, quote says. And he actually, yeah, I think uh, he's he's got it right. And uh, who knows, maybe they're going to get school choice uh, expanded this year. But here's the quote from the governor of New Hampshire. Quote, it's going to be about, out. it's got to be about outcomes for the kids, not outcomes for the system. We have to stop worrying about the system as much as the kids. It reminds me of what Betsy DeVos said. She was castigated for saying like, oh, we really should resist any attempt to make it about oh. systems when we should really make it about kids. And then like, oh, Betsy DeVos calls for resistance. Ah, now she's subversive. Oh, she's terrible. It's like, you know, really, you really think that's that controversial to say the system should be about kids. Okay, well, thanks for revealing, <laughs> revealing yourself. I'm not seeing any other stories for... Wow, but well, this is supposed to be a mini show anyway. Yeah. I think we get a place. Jeez. But so thank you for supporting the show over the course of our inaugural year 2020. And it'll only be bigger and brighter and better in 2021. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I want to thank everybody for coming out for another episode of the Random Assignment Podcast. I want everybody to have a Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, uh, whatever holiday you support. Have an excellent New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, and uh, we'll see you guys after that. So let me say, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and Happy New Year. Stay safe. We'll see you later.